0: Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 59. This week we have a special episode in honor of the Cassini mission, uh, which is coming to a dramatic close on September 15th, and for the first time ever for a podcast intro, I'm joined by fellow science communicator, Abby Tabor. Hey, Matt. Now, you might recognize Abby's voice because she's recorded several story features uh, for the podcast. These are basically the audio versions of stories that she writes for NASA.gov. Right. In fact, uh, she pulled together a great panel discussion for the Cassini mission. Mm -hmm. So Abby, tell us about that.
1: Well, the Cassini spacecraft has been studying Saturn and its rings and its moons for the last 13 years. But it's about to plunge into the planet's atmosphere and end the mission. So we wanted to mark that occasion. And here at Ames, we have three scientists who were part of the original Cassini Mm -hmm. science team. So we got those guys to come in and talk about it. And that includes Jeff Cuzzy, He's a specialist of Saturn's rings. And Dale Cruikshank, he studies the small bodies of the outer solar system, so that includes Saturn's moon Titan, Mm -hmm. he's looking at the surface composition, and then also Chris McKay, he was involved in developing the Huygens probe way back Mm in the 70s, and that's a probe that Cassini carried out there to land on Titan, and so Chris has been studying uh, astrobiology since then. So these guys laid the groundwork for the mission, and they came in to tell us about what Cassini
0: taught us. And for fans of the podcast, we have two veterans. I guess our returning Jeopardy champions. Uh, There's Chris right. McKay and also Jeff Kezzy, who was just last week's episode. Um, and that's Dale right. Krukshank is the new he's the new guy on on the block.
1: The newcomer. That's right.
0: Uh, so, but before we jump into the conversation, just for everybody who's listening, fans of the podcast, you know, no matter how or however you found the podcast, it would be really awesome if you go ahead and like, share, comment, subscribe, or do whatever it is that you love to do on your favorite podcast app or social media. Um, That really is the best way to help others notice and find the podcast. Um, Also, on top of that, we would love your feedback. We've been using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley on Twitter, but starting today, you can also call and leave us a message. Wow. Um, Our phone number that we're going to use is six five zero six oh four one four zero zero now we're going to listen to the messages and who knows maybe we'll pull some of your questions out for future episodes and a quick reminder we are a nasa podcast but we are not the only nasa podcast so we always want to give a shout out to our friends over in houston um for the houston we have a podcast but also there is a podcast uh one podcast to rule them all, I suppose, is called NASA Casts. They've taken all of the RSS feeds for all of the podcasts and put it into one big omnibus uh, podcast. So um, that's uh, that's how you can find us and listen to us and share us. But for this episode... Yeah, in the meantime, let's listen to our Cassini tribute episode. <laughs>
1: and here to tell us about the scientific surprises that Cassini revealed and also how it feels to see your decades-long science mission Come to an end, are Chris McKay, Dale Cruikshank, and Jeff Cuzzy. So we're here today in a crowded little audio studio at Ames Research Center with three of Ames scientists who were on the very original science team for the Cassini mission. So we're going to get a great historical perspective on this mission because it is coming to a close. So Jeff, could you tell us a little bit about what is about to happen in the middle of September?
2: Right. Well, the, the grand finale of Cassini uh, is going to come to a close in September the 15th. So since last December, Cassini has been put on a series of almost polar orbits. So it's going around Saturn, crossing over its pole, plunging in very close. We had 20 orbits where we just skim right by the outside edge of the rings and 20 more orbits where we actually thread a needle between the rings and the planet. And at the last of those 20 orbits, we do a little orbital tweak way out far from the planet, and it comes in, and when it comes in, it goes right into the atmosphere and burns up. And wow. that will be the end of the data-taking stage of
1: Cassini. Oh my gosh. I wanna get into how you guys feel about, about this moment. Is it sad? Is it is it exciting? Is this the culmination of this mission that you've been following for decades? Or is there a bit of bittersweetness?
2: Cassini has had a a number of stages. We had the planning stage, which goes back to the early 80s, and that was very exciting, and the construction stage, and the implementation, the flight stage, so we're flying, flying, nothing's happening, and then we had these last 13 years or 14 years of, uh, of actual data taking, and now that stage is over. But
1: how, for how long is nothing happening in that Well, middle the flight
2: stage? stage was about seven years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We launched in 1997 and we got there in 2004. And most of, the, from the standpoint of the scientists, there was not an awful lot going on during that time, okay. except starting to think about how we were going to engineer and design the orbits. But uh, the end of the data taking stage, in my mind anyway, and Dalen. Chris uh, have different feelings about it. I, to me, it's not the end of Cassini because we've got mm-hmm. this uh, vast amount of data. That uh, So there's another stage to Cassini and that stage is just beginning. That's Very how cr- I feel about it.
1: Excellent, Cassini lives on lives after on. its final plunge. Dale, how do you feel at least? Well, I might just
3: add to what Jeff said, that uh, the flight from Earth to Saturn was not without its uh, interesting moments. We did actually fly rather close to Jupiter and made some interesting measurements of both Jupiter and uh, a few of its larger satellites. So there was excitement along the way, or at least um, things that gave us opportunities to see how well the instruments were performing and how well our planning exercises uh, could be done. And okay. So all that was a great success and then there was the long haul on out to Saturn. In terms of whether or not this is a bittersweet moment, uh, it's important I think to to note that the Cassini spacecraft had on board a limited number of, amount of resources mm-hmm. that allow it to point in the particular directions that are required. One of which, of course, is the direction of your target, the moon, uh, moons of Saturn or the rings or the planet. And the other is to point back to Earth to be able to relay the data that it took. And that all has to be done on a a very regular basis. So the resources, which is really onboard correction fuel, you might call it, um, has nearly run out. Mm -hmm. And the other part of this is that after this very long run of excellent data taking and more to come in the analysis, Uh, it's expensive to keep Cassini operating. I see. And so there are desires to get other planetary missions going, and this one is reaching a, a very natural and appropriate end, which will in fact then free up funds for further exploration by other spacecraft and new ideas that keep coming along the way.
1: Okay. So it's like, thank you Cassini, you've had a great run, and it's time for you to retire now.
3: (laughs) That's a good way to put it, Okay.
1: I see. Chris, can you remind us, first of all, why are we sending Cassini diving into Saturn? And then, tell us a little bit about your feelings. Well,
4: inevitably, Cassini, when it runs out of power and fuel, will crash somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, most likely it'll crash into Saturn it's the big object in that system but there's a chance that if we just let it go derelict it would crash into some other object like mm-hmm. Titan or Enceladus we don't want that to happen because we don't want to risk the chance that it will contaminate those other objects oh, yeah. so we're purposefully crash steering it towards Saturn uh, but it, it it couldn't it really doesn't have much choice we can't push Cassini out of the Saturn system to follow Voyager into interstellar space or anything like okay. that. It is it is deeply trapped in the Saturn system and its fate, regardless of what we do, will be to crash into something in the Saturn system. We just want to control that crash. And the reason is, is because partly because of Cassini's own success. It has revealed such interesting worlds from an astrobiology point of view. Cool. In particular, my favorites are Titan and Enceladus. And as Cassini dies, to me it's really closing one book and opening another. It's let's go on and do these further missions, as Dale was just saying, uh, to explore these worlds that Cassini has opened up for us, Titan and Enceladus, let's go.
1: That's so exciting. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad this is not a sorrowful moment. This is a celebration of the next stage of Cassini's legacy. Uh,
2: AMES was the lead center for NASA for probes, and Ames designed the Galileo probe and the Pioneer Venus entry probes that, that, would, that involves heat shield technology and a lot of specialized technology.
1: Right, and that's that, Those are things Ames still works on today. He still works technology, on today. Yeah. If there
2: are future probes to say Uranus or right. Saturn, I expect Ames will be involved. But so the Ames started running the very first Titan probe studies back in the, the late 70s. In fact, I was involved in those. That was one of the first things I did when I came to NASA. Mm-hmm. And uh, we presented to NASA headquarters, and they said to us, we love this idea so much, we're going to give it to JPL to, to implement. And then it got passed on to uh, the European Space Agency. As mm-hmm. you know, uh, NASA and ESA shared the Cassini-Huygens mission. So ESA actually built and, uh, and uh, you know, flew, flew the uh, Huygens probe, of which Chris was a member. But they use pretty much the same uh, plans that were developed right here at Ames.
1: Okay, so Ames laid the groundwork for something that became an international collaboration, multiple NASA centers, multiple space agencies, and we know the world is watching. I see Cassini Saturn on Twitter and people are just dying over the beautiful images that it's sending back. It's really been a big hit. Dale, tell us how did you get involved and when and what were your feelings back then on the mission?
3: I got involved at the uh, point at which the science teams were selected uh, because I had up to that time uh, written a number of papers about uh, telescopic observations of satellites of Saturn and Hmm. other small bodies in the outer solar system. So I came in on a, on a science wave, basically, and was um, included in one of the particular instrument teams, a team built around the instrument that makes spectral maps of uh, the targets, whether it's Saturn rings or the moon.
1: And what would those tell us? What are spectral maps for?
3: Well, a spectral map allows you to determine the composition from mm-hmm. spectroscopic techniques of a target object and also see how that Uh, The chemicals or the molecules that you've identified are distributed. That is, you can make a map. If you made a map, a spectral map of the Earth, for example, you'd show that the oceans are made out of water, the pole caps are made out of ice, and the continents are made out of rock and dirt. And so we make spectral, and you can do this with a spectral map of the kind I'm talking about for these other objects. So we've done that with the the rings, um, Mm -hmm. the moons of Saturn, And we know a lot about what materials are there based on these um, maps and the molecules and other materials that they reveal. And the distribution of that material is extremely interesting and important in trying to understand the histories of these objects, how they came to be in the first place, and what have the last four and a half billion years of of changes in their environments caused uh, to to be seen on their surfaces. I would also point out, since Chris already mentioned Titan, that the instrument I'm referring to, which is called VIMS, or the Visible Infrared Mapping Spectrometer, has uh, allowed us to penetrate the clouds and haze of, of uh, Titan, which often make the, the other instruments uh, unable to see the surface well. Okay. But we can penetrate the, that haze because of the particular wavelength characteristics of our instruments. And we've seen what lurks on the surface of Titan, um, including the discovery of the hydrocarbon lakes. that occur there. The radar instruments on Cassini reveal the presence of lakes, but we can actually tell you what those lakes are made of, and it turns out they're made of some combination of liquid ethane and methane, which are two hydrocarbons.
1: So incredible. This still gets me that you can know that about a body so far from Earth. What is the distance to Saturn from Earth?
2: About a billion kilometers. Yeah, eight
3: astronomical units. It's getting up toward yeah. Wow.
1: And you're looking at it. You're looking at the surface of these Yes, and in detail. We can see
3: things as small as as, uh, half a mile or even better on the surfaces of some of these objects. And in the case of the rings, as Jeff can uh, tell in great detail, we see some very small details uh, of objects and uh, ripples in, in the ring system.
1: Yeah, I've seen those images. That's amazing. So when Cassini started sending back its data and its images, were you surprised by this level of detail that you were seeing, or was this always expected to be the kind of information you would have?
2: Well, for the rings, uh, the, the big eye-opener was really Voyager. Voyager mm. revealed that, for the first time, that the rings were just full and full of structure. And what Cassini has done is reveal yet finer structure, more uh, in-depth uh, uh, you know, observations of that structure, it's allowing us to untangle. I mean, what is it really caused by? That's the thing Cassini is really doing for the rings. Mm-hmm. For Enceladus and Titan, uh, it's a whole different story, I think.
1: That's also cool, the variety of science that Cassini's bringing you. It's not just a Saturn's rings mission. It's all oh, yeah. these other astrobiological implications and other things we're learning. That's exciting. And you know,
3: just to add to the list of things that Cassini does, that was mentioned before, uh, it also makes an in-depth study of the magnetic field surrounding the planet oh. and the variations in that field because of changes in the activity of the sun and the orientation of the planet, and so on. So it's it's not just Saturn, the solid or the the discrete body. It's the environment, the space environment of Saturn as well.
4: One of the big surprises when the Cassini-Huygens mission arrived was Titan. Oh, okay. We had sort of ideas of what it was like, and in fact, there was this consensus as we were building the probe that Titan's surface would be an ocean, a hmm. global ocean. So the probe was built as a boat to float in this ah. ocean that we were sure we were going to land on. Wow! And when Cassini and Huygens arrived, it was a very different world. When we finally got through the haze, could see down to the bottom of Titan and land with the probe the probe landed in what looked like a desert and at first the orbiter um, the images and the radar did not reveal any liquid at all for we thought it was going to be a dry uh, maybe Mars-like world but then there was images of a lake in the southern hemisphere and then radar data and then VIMS data of lakes in the northern hemisphere and Yes, there's liquid there and it's very interesting liquid. It's not the ocean that we thought when we built the probe. So oh, there I was see. there were big surprises in our understanding of Titan. And in a way, the picture that emerged from an astrobiology point of view is more interesting. Oh good. A global ocean <laughs> is, is neat, but it's water water everywhere. Well, it's liquid liquid everywhere. It's not water, it's mm-hmm. liquid liquid everywhere. What we're finding instead is a mix of wetland, dry land and lakes. And from cool. a if you're a little organism that likes to live in that liquid, that mixture of dry and wet and and lakes and streams is more dynamic, more interesting, and more conducive to a good life. Right. So in, in a way, Titan is emerged from the Cassini-Huygens mission more interesting than we had imagined when we built it.
1: Oh, that is cool. That must have been an exciting moment. Huh? What did you know about the Saturn system when you were planning this mission that made it the target you had to go after?
2: Well, a lot of ring structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Enceladus was was very puzzling. Enceladus was unlike any other moon, it, uh, and it was centered in this uh, very diffuse ring of Saturn, the E ring, which is just all fine dust. Mm-hmm. And there was suspected that there was something funny going on in Enceladus that maybe was creating all this dust. And as uh, uh, Dale and Chris uh, have alluded to and can say more about, that we have all these volcanic jets now coming out of Enceladus. just fascinating. But that was a puzzle. So we didn't know that. And Titan, uh, as seen by Voyager, was this fuzzy orange tennis ball. And we knew that uh, from a radio wave passing through the atmosphere, had a very thick atmosphere, pressure-like pr- uh, surface of the Earth, and all this nitrogen and uh, so i would say the combination of uh, the promise of titan of enceladus and this fascinating rings really drove uh, cassini planning
1: interesting were you thinking about the search for life at that point
4: well the the search for life wasn't part of cassini's the uh, cassini mission and it really is only now emerging mm. from the cassini results that the search for life makes sense so that i would say is part of the next step What Cassini did was reveal that there were habitable worlds there. And that was a big revelation. I would say that the Cassini results from Enceladus have shown that world to be habitable and more so than any other world beyond Earth in our solar system. So Enceladus went from this obscure little world, interesting to the rings, folks, because of the E-ring, to being the star center stage of astrobiology and our understanding of habitable worlds. So Cassini really did a wang a, a bang job when it came to astrobiology and searching yeah. for habitable worlds.
1: Yeah, that is a big, big world of possibilities to have opened up during the course of a mission. Right? Yeah. Would you say is that typical of these kinds of space missions, that you go in with one big goal and you find a whole bunch of other ones? Well, we're often surprised, mm-hmm. and we're often wrong. <laughs> like the
4: ocean on Titan is, yeah. uh, is a good example. Uh, I think, in, as, as Jeff indicated, we knew something was happening with Enceladus, but the full richness of the geysers and their organic content and the biologically available nitrogen and the biologically available energy sources inside the geyser, that was just even now i pinch myself to think did we really discover that it is yeah. just so amazing
1: dale did i cut you off did you want to add no something no
4: I, I could go on for hours but i won't uh, <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, i was interested in, in chris's uh, highlights uh, as he just spoke um, a highlight for me was the opportunity to study up close and in detail uh, one of the other satellites of saturn which we have known for about 300 years is really very interesting hmm. Um, In fact, the the study of this satellite, which is called Iapetus, uh, goes back to the Pioneer space mission, which was operated out of Ames, by the way, uh, in the 70s. And then we got some more information with Voyager in the 80s. But now we are able, with Cassini, to look at this very strange satellite up close. First of all, It's fairly large, smaller than our moon, but still fairly large. It's mainly made of ice, but Mm -hmm. one of its surfaces, one hemisphere, is almost entirely coated with some kind of black, reddish, uh, low reflectivity material. So what is that stuff and where did it come from? With Cassini and the VIMS instrument that I work with, as well as some other instruments, we've come to an understanding that this is some kind of an organic solid material complex organics. We can measure its spectrum and its distribution on Iapetus, and we now even know where it came from, the dark stuff, because it turns out that another of Saturn's moons has apparently been hit by some projectile, some uh, comet or uh, asteroid from space, and has liberated a huge amount of dust. This is the, the outermost large moon called Phoebe, Yep. And that uh-huh. dust has spread itself into a gigantic ring, much larger in sky size than the, the rings we're more familiar with. And the dust from this ring slowly filters in towards Saturn. And as it does, it, some of it is intercepted by my favorite satellite, Iapetus, mm-hmm. and Iapetus gets a coating on one of its hemispheres. So we now know where this dust comes from. We even have a pretty good idea of how thick it is, which is about 10, 20 inches. It's not much, and it's still falling. It's still getting dusty on Iapetus. And now from the VIMS instrument study, we know that it's made of complex organic material. Um, This then feeds back into this whole issue of the of the organic content of the solar system and must in some way that we haven't yet, I think, uncovered relate to the organic material that's on Titan Uh and Enceladus and the other objects that we still want to explore in greater detail.
1: Very cool. Could you explain a little, though, what what do we know about this organic material? That doesn't mean Mm. it's necessarily related to life, right?
3: That's correct. In fact, it almost certainly isn't. Um, But we've found in space, both in our solar system, in our galaxy, and in other galaxies far beyond, that carbon and hydrogen like to get together Mm -hmm. and make uh, the rudimentary material that we would call organic. So the term organic doesn't um, necessarily imply the uh, origin or uh, uh, in any relationship to to, uh, life itself. It's a common process throughout the universe, apparently, and some of it has happened in our neighborhood, and what we see on Iapetus and certain other objects in the solar system is evidence of that material that has formed in abundance and has been spread around and accumulated in interesting ways.
1: Neat, and that's what we're going to continue learning about, huh? Yes. That's the future that Cassini has made possible. Mm. Fascinating. Now, I'd like to ask something that I've always wondered about. We hear about these space missions, and when you're not working on them, you you probably hear about it when it launches. And then years later, maybe, you hear about it when it reaches its destination. But the whole process starts probably decades before even the launch. So you guys have been watching Cassini for decades. How Mm -hmm. How does it feel at the beginning? Looking forward, being excited about the science that this is going to provide for you, but knowing you're going to have to wait years and years and years. What does it feel when you launch? Do you, I mean, not when you launch the spacecraft, but when the project gets going?
2: That was a great feeling of excitement, of yeah. uh, mutual uh, commitment to uh, a goal, a, a fantastic goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those first P.S.G. meetings were were terrific. Uh, even before, the planning stage, like you said, went on for years, went on for, you know, 10 years, really, yeah. uh, before it was approved by Congress in 1990, and our first big meetings were in 1991. It's this just this great feeling of, uh, you know, lots of potential. And then uh, you work through it all, and then there's all the arguments and disagreements that mm-hmm. come along the way, and Eventually. you work through all those, and uh, at the end, there's this great feeling, and at least in the case of Cassini, of satisfaction, of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. You know, Cassini has fulfilled its promise, in my mind, anyway. It's just been a tremendous success. So you can look back on that with with great satisfaction.
1: Right. I can imagine.
4: I I got involved in Cassini after it had already gone through probably about a third of its early history. So when when I arrived to Ames and started working on this project, there had already been a well- a lot of effort put in in making this mission happen. It, it got selected soon after I got involved in it, and then uh, I, I was able to watch it for 20 years or more as as the data came in. And to me, there was two lessons in that. One mm-hmm. is it takes a long time to do the outer solar system, and the other is that it is multi generational. That yeah. I, as a young scientist, benefited from a lot of work that had been done in the decade before I even came to Ames, before I even knew what was going on. Right. And now, uh, as Cassini ends and we think about what future missions go, I'm doing a lot of that work now for future missions that I know will fly and return their data long after I'm doing something else. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you're retired. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs>
4: or, or worse. Right. So, uh, but But I like that. I like uh-huh. that idea of projects that are so big and so long – that they require us to think intergenerational. Yeah. And the outer solar system does that. And And Cassini was my first experience in it, and now I'm participating in it on the other end, yeah. following along from what Cassini has done.
1: That's awesome. It's like it's bigger than any of us, right?
3: I think a point that um, has uh, interested me over the years, too, is the fact that we started working with uh, a lot of people we already knew from our rather small profession. And these people have been working together for three decades Mm -hmm. on this. And this has engendered great friendships and great collegial relationships. Uh, Some of them, of course, die off during the long process. And new students come in, uh, touching on the intergenerational point that Chris just made. But these are fantastically talented people Mm -hmm. who who are giving of their time and talent to make a, a complex mission like this a success. Yeah. And it is just a tremendous pleasure to work with people of that quality and that degree of uh, devotion and de- and dedication.
1: That sounds so satisfying. Very. Which which is exciting to hear because my initial thought was, oh man, how do you wait that long, you know? But it's- You're sounds...
2: busy, you're not just, uh, there's yes. a lot of time. Mm-hmm. You're doing a lot of planning. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Nobody's and
4: working on other missions too,
3: right? Yeah, I do, I've been working on the the New Horizons mission to Pluto for a comparable amount of time, cool. uh, and mm-hmm. we've had tremendous success flying by Pluto two years ago, and we have another target in view. But that took nine and a half years from mm-hmm. launch uh, on a sprint to get all the way out to Pluto, right. but tremendously successful, satisfying. And it interleaved nicely with the long uh, period that I've been involved in with uh, Cassini as well.
1: That's also interesting that all these missions, many of them overlap and are interwoven, as you say. The knowledge we gain from one place feeds into another. Voyager Mm -hmm. was
2: still flying when Cassini was almost ready to be approved. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was uh, very much overlapped.
1: Yeah, I see. And then this intergenerational point is really nice because that always comes up at NASA. We need to inspire the next generation, train the next generation, so they can take over when you guys hang up your hats and (laughs) move on. They're there.
2: We've got some great young people already uh, involved.
1: Mm -hmm. That's outstanding. So maybe one final topic could be... Now I know we discussed that this is not the end of Cassini, but I was kind of thinking of asking you for a eulogy for Cassini. If you had to reflect on its contributions scientifically and also for the public to society in terms of getting people excited about space, everybody loves the rings of Saturn, people are loving the photos coming back, what for for you are the the biggest impacts or the ones that really captured your minds?
2: Since you mentioned the rings of Saturn, uh, let me say a few things about what we have learned. Uh, uh, Saturn's rings are really like a a vast dynamical laboratory. It's a big, giant particle disk Mm -hmm. where the particles interact like molecules in a fluid. So we treat it like a fluid, collisions and such. So it's a great way to understand the processes by which our planet formed from the disk of particles and gas that uh, originally surrounded our sun. It's a ah. laboratory for us to study that. All those processes <laughs> in the rings uh, probably happened in one way or another in uh, our own forming solar system and in other forming solar systems where we see all these thousands of exoplanets. Oh, so,
1: okay, right. So Saturn tells us about Earth, potentially. Tells us about then Earth. And
2: beyond. And beyond, no doubt. Wow. The other thing we learned was that Saturn's rings are changing before our eyes. The, huh. This fluid flops around and moves and changes, and uh, we see things colliding and recreating mm-hmm. as we watch. That's been uh, fascinating. In fact, the whole origin of Saturn's rings, uh, we think, uh, it's whether they formed in the last couple hundred million years is a hot topic these days, mm-hmm. that is, around the age of the fish on Earth, or oh. more recently.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: And there are things uh, that are still being worked, so we can't answer that question right now. There's data being taken right now by Cassini that mm-hmm. we'll hear about in two weeks, uh, and this work will go on. But this is a very hot subject right now about okay. Simon's Ring. So this whole concept of impermanence and uh, oh, yeah. change uh, applied to this vast structure has been something we've really learned very well through Cassini.
1: That's very cool, yeah, because we don't think about the outer solar system transforming and going through long-term change. We we don't get the chance to see that normally.
2: That's right.
1: Yeah, neat. Well, that's a good takeaway. How about Dale or Chris?
4: Well, my uh, farewell to Cassini would be thank you for the revelations of Titan's liquid methane lakes Mm -hmm. and even more so for the organic rich geysers on Enceladus, because that's given us astrobiologists a a clear direction on what to do next, So, and we're doing it.
1: Awesome, awesome. We look forward to that next chapter, clearly. (laughs) I
4: see two things.
3: Uh, One is that the things we've been finding with uh, Cassini in the Saturn system um, give us ideas for the use of the Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be an enormously powerful facility to be launched in about two years from now. right? And the other thing that comes to mind is that uh, Cassini, with so many of the other things that NASA does, is most often the best news you ever get. Mm -hmm. In in a world uh, where the media are jammed with uh, not so good news, almost everything you hear from NASA is Good news and stimulating. It and I is. think that this is a, a tremendous gift to not only the American public but to humanity that uh, NASA has these, uh, these lofty goals and has found ways to achieve them. And with a cadre of talented and um, anxious and vigorous young people to carry these missions out, we are often the best news you'll ever get.
0: <laughs> Absolutely yeah,
1: right. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's so true. You you feel that around NASA Ames, people mm. are just so delighted to be here, and people out there across the country, across the world, love what you do. So. Thank you guys so much for joining me today and for our listeners, if you have any questions for these NASA Ames researchers who were part of the very original Cassini science team, you can get in touch with us. Um, We are at NASA Ames online and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So you can send us your questions and we will get them to Jeff, Dale and Chris and get back to you. So thanks again for joining us. This was wonderful.